Hello and welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Orlando, Sifted's commissioning editor. And at Sifted, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast, we peek inside the Sifted newsroom, discuss the biggest things our journalists have been reporting on and speak to some of the people behind the headlines. This week, we've got some chunky fundraisers for exciting young companies working in AI and quantum. And I'll be picking Amy's brains about some new data highlighting the big gulf in funding available to male and female investors. And we'll be joined by Karen Ebbinghaus, CEO of Elon Road, a Swedish startup that's planning on turning our roads into electric car chargers to reduce the need for expensive batteries. And in case you're wondering where Eleanor is this week, she is on an extremely well-deserved holiday slash trip to her old home, Japan. But there is loads to discuss, so let's get into it. This week, we had the news that German generative AI startup Aleph Alpha has raised $500 million in new investment to scale up its large language or LLM model business. LLMs are the type of large AI model that powers chatbots like ChatGPT, who I'm sure everyone has heard about, which are trained using huge amounts of data and computing power. So, Orlando, what is Aleph Alpha's plan is it taking on open ai so like open ai alaf alpha builds large language models but unlike open ai it's not really designed for me and you alaf alpha is going to be going straight for enterprises lawyers academics people in finance and government it wants to commercialize generative ai right off the bat and this funding is going to help it scale that and take on competition in both the us and china and there's a real sort of europe angle to this as well isn't there There is so much so that one investor that participated in the round told us that originally they only wanted to raise from German and European investors. But for the CEO and founder, Jonas Andrillis, this is very much a European tech sovereignty play. He believes that not all AI companies have to be reliant on Google and Microsoft. And that's that's a popular view here in Europe, of course. Uh, French government pouring money into AI. We've just seen the summit here in the UK. Um, So people like it, I think. Cavalry Ventures' Claude Ritter told Sifted, he was at least was optimistic. Uh, he said Europe had a growing AI alumni thinking of Mistral, DeepMind, and that governments were keen for Europe to punch above his weight. He said, feels like there is good momentum for LF Alpha to get off the ground. But he also said, will this be a German company forever? I can't tell you. There is perhaps to be slightly sceptical uh, another side to this story. So the $500 million that was raised, that's actually 110 million euros in equity and we uh, were told by a source that the rest of the most of the rest of the funding is in the form of a grant it doesn't include any debt but it's not quite the enormous equity round that some media first reported that it was and andrewless you know has has mentioned several times he told us at a recent conference that Miriam and Eleanor were at in Heilbronn that you know he doesn't want to become a really massive company he told us that he I quote I don't necessarily want to have a company of 10,000 people. I want to contribute to the fact that there's technological sovereignty and I want to be the smallest company that can do that, which is obviously extremely admirable if that Mm. is what he's doing. But the flip of this might be, in fact, that he thinks he can't actually compete with the likes of OpenAI and can't ever get that big and can't ever raise as much money. And perhaps the fact that some of this money was in a grant, the skeptics would say, is a sign that it can't punch with those other competitors. And so there's perhaps a slight other spin on the story here. So uh, just a reminder that everything is not always exactly as it might seem from press releases. Yeah, absolutely. 
And now on to some more AI news. This week, Sifted got our hands on a pitch deck for a new startup, Adaptive, based in Amsterdam, which is raising 20 million US dollars, valuing the business at 100 million just after it got itself incorporated. Uh, so, Amy, why do we think investors gave out a valuation like this to a company with so little to show? Yeah, so um, as anyone watching this space will know, these kind of crazy seeming seed rounds are becoming quite common now these startups that basically have a pitch deck and um some big name people from or big name companies on the founding team's cvs seem to be really hot hot stuff so adaptive is you know another one of these it's looking to raise 20 million we we saw the pitch deck this week and multiple slides are just the faces of the people on the team um they include several engineers and researchers from places like the french founded open source ai company hugging face which is very very fiery right now and also someone who worked in the machine learning team at amazon web services yeah, it's becoming a bit of a trend in tech, isn't it? We, um, in a recent newsletter, I think we called it the silly seed round season. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few examples that are similar. So in the summer of last year, Mustafa Suleiman, who is one of the founders of DeepMind, kind of Europe's OG AI uh, company, he raised $225 million for his new AI-powered personal assistant startup, Inflection. That's a pretty big round. Then in June this year, Mistral, um, the French large language model startup, which um, is founded by people who used to work at Meta and DeepMind once again, raised 105 million euros when it was just, I think, four weeks old and had just about hired its first employees. And then in August this summer, we saw the former CTO of GitHub, Jason Warner, raise an $126 million seed round for his Gen.I coding startup poolside. So the formula basically does seem to be you need to be a man who's worked for a um, significant AI or tech company in their machine learning team elsewhere and you need to have a pitch deck and an idea but not necessarily that much more than that and you can raise a hundred million dollars plus in your seed round well there you go guys everyone listening that's uh, that one's for you uh, what do we actually know about what adaptive will actually do yeah good question so it's pitch deck says the company is building solutions to help clients build more accurate and efficient specialized ai models based on company data it also says it will be able to charge these customers 120,000 to 360,000 um dollars per year for use of its platform and that it could charge up to as much as 1 million dollars for custom models in the form of like one-off revenue i mean that's all very much i would say pie in the sky right now given mm-hmm. their a bunch of people in a pitch deck but that's what investors like index ventures uh the information's reported they're they're looking at doing this deal seem seems to have caught their eye and one more news story today it's french startup quandella which has raised 50 million euros to manufacture commercial quantum computers orlando it's the science quiz time. What does this company do? Yes, well, I'm a huge fan of quantum, uh, so I'm going to try and explain it. Well, but basically, what Quantella does 
is manufactures functioning, and I want to caveat that until a bit later, but functioning quantum computers. It's actually made and delivered its first device to a French cloud provider, OVH Cloud, which is the first time a European quantum computer has been bought and hosted by a private company. Now, the caveat, what does functioning actually mean when it comes to quantum computing? Well, we've heard a lot about how quantum computers will ultimately be able to do a lot of really cool stuff, from creating medicines or solving curable diseases to inventing new materials, and they do that using quantum particles called qubits. Uh, before anyone gets excited, Quandela's machines are not reversing climate change anytime soon. Even the most conservative estimates expect that a quantum computer would need hundreds of thousands of qubits to solve complex problems. So that is decades away. So how does it size up compared to other companies trying to make quantum computers useful? Different quantum computers use different techniques to make qubits. Pascal, this is a French startup that builds quantum computers with neutral atoms, has 100 qubits and says it can get 1,000 qubits in the medium term. If you remember, we just said before that you need about 100,000 to have a functioning computer. IBM, which has the biggest one so far, has released 433 qubits and wants to deliver 1,121 qubit device by the end of the year. And Quandela's most powerful model has six qubits. So they're a little bit behind on the numbers. Why are investors so excited? Well, unsurprisingly, the company says its technique, which is making calculations using photons, is more stable than that of its rivals, not least because photons are less susceptible to noise. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of these computers, but they are literally being operated in volts in sub-zero conditions in total silence. Any noise at all messes up the computer. So it's, it's a very difficult Science. Quandela's co-founder, Niccolo Somashi, says that photons are more reliable, less bothered by noise and easier to scale up. It's as simple as that. But of course, nothing about quantum is simple. And when pushed on how Quandela's computers are actually going to scale, what does he say? It's confidential. Now, back to your question. It's fair to say that investors aren't just interested in Quandela, they're interested in quantum. If this becomes a thing, if it's truly scalable, you can just imagine the impact it will have and investors want a piece of that. And how are companies actually able to use Quandela's technology today? Well, the answer is genuinely that they really, they can't, but that it doesn't really matter. In Quandela's case, they're developing an algorithm with EDF, the French energy giant, to work on simulations for how to operate their hydroelectric dams. And the idea is that once they get these algorithms, and then once we have a powerful enough computer, they will be able to run them. So the work is kind of, it's almost like putting work in place before we need it. And this is why it's a difficult issue, quantum generally, because it, it could be everything. One day there could be an amazing quantum computer that's just suddenly created by someone and we could solve all these problems, or we might never get there, or we might not get there for 50 years. So I suppose it's a bit of a gamble, like a lot of things. What quantum founders do tell me is it's a little bit like AI in that it will become part of our lives and part of a lot of things that we do before it becomes this huge breakthrough. So, you know, you think of like Spellcheck, which has been around for ages. Quantum will be a bit like that. It'll start to seep into everything we do. And then in the end, it will become everything. But And that's why people are investing in it now, despite the fact that we can't really do anything with it yet. So now we're off to Sweden and we're joined by Karen Ebenhaus, the CEO of Elon Road, a startup that's working on the ambitious goal of turning our roads into electric car chargers. So Karen, welcome to the pod. Firstly, to get this out of the way, is your company named after Elon Musk? <laughs> uh, no, it's not. Even though that's my really bad dad joke, Elon Road, it's a Musk, <laughs> but it stands 
It's really uh, the Swedish word for electricity is just el. So we are what we call electricity on road. Got it. So on to more serious matters. What is the problem that you're trying to solve? Why do we need charges embedded in our roads? Well, if we look into how we're going to scale electrification, uh, because I think that it's quite clear now that we need to you know, shift away from fossil fuels and electrification is the solution that we have chosen. So looking into electrification, what is needed? It needs a lot of different raw materials and conflict minerals to build those batteries and the production of batteries requires a lot of CO2 emissions. So if we can make batteries smaller in each vehicle, then for the same amount of minerals and materials, we can electrify more vehicles. And if you have access to charging while you drive, you don't have to carry on board all the energy. And that is really the, the problem that we want to solve. How can we scale electrification as resource efficient as possible, as quick as possible? Cool. Talk us through your tech. What does it what does it actually look like? How does it work in practice? So I'm not sure if you ever played with Scalectic or Carrera Kart Track when you were little, those racetrack. It's basically building one of those, but in real size. So we have rails made of um, recycled aluminium that we fill with power electronics. We embed it into existing uh, roads, uh, connect to the grid. Uh, and once you drive over, so it's, it's not activated, it's only activated when you drive over it. So that's how we, and then we split segments into plus and minus. Not sure how technical you are, but still plus and minus. And that's how we can transfer the energy into the vehicle. Cool. And if we want to, I don't know, take a motorway, take the bridge between Malmo and Copenhagen, and we wanted to electrify that, like how, how would you actually do that? How much would that cost? How easy is this to retrofit? Uh, funny you mentioned that. We are actually talking to the bridge. Amazing. <laughs> uh, because then it would be really the most sustainable bridge in the world. But yes, uh, so uh, to include our technology, you would just mill a very, very shallow drench in the asphalt and you will probably plop in the rails uh, and then you connect to the grid. Uh, and since it's a bridge that contains a train, uh, there's actually a lot of access to energy already. So that infrastructure is, is already in place. And, and for us, of course, you need to have some users to make it you know, sustainably from a profitable perspective. So finding use cases, driving back and forth would really be the best case for us. Cool. And how much does something like this cost at the moment? Well, we're looking at uh, approximately 1 million euro per kilometer. So it's not that expensive if compared to what it, what it costs to, to build roads or to build really big public fast charging. So it's, I would say it's in cost comparison to existing solutions. And who, who's shown an interest in this so far? Well, there, there's different applications. So uh, it, both actually in Sweden, Germany and France, from a governmental perspective, they have looked into what is the best way to decarbonize road transportation? Because we can see in Europe that transportation is actually increasing. And it's estimated to increase even more because we are now relocating a lot of production back to Europe. Uh, we're also working with a lot of recycling. So that also entails a lot of transport. Uh, so governments are looking in solutions to decarbonize. And then 
there's a political agreement of building uh, electrical road corridors. But we are also looking into, what do you say, more confined closed areas like ports, airports, industrial hubs, where you have the same area, you have the same vehicle type and you want to have uptime. So there's no natural time for vehicles to stand still and charge. Then they can implement our solution and keep operations as as they are used to. So it will be everything from governments to business to business organizations who want to deploy their fleets and electrify them. Very cool, but unlikely to be, I guess, on suburban roads anytime soon. No, it will take a while, <laughs> but uh, hopefully by 2030, you can drive from Malmo to Madrid and then you don't have to stop and charge. Amazing. And then finally, I guess your company falls into an area we find very interesting at Sifted, which is climate infrastructure. But it's quite tricky to find funding. I think we've heard from lots of companies it's... The, your standard VC doesn't necessarily want to provide all the funding for a company like this. What, what have you found work so far in terms of the mix of investment you've got? Well, it's a good question. And, and, and yes, software alone will not save the world. And I would say most VCs today are used to software. They are not so familiar with this kind of, you know, animal in, text, in context of, you know, producing things and things you don't know you're more skeptical of. Uh, so I think that we are seeing now, though, starting to bridge that gap between traditional VCs and perhaps more industrial CVCs and a, a strong collaboration between them, industrial players. So I think that we will see new VC types emerging uh, based on the need that these kind of climate infrastructure tech companies are, are looking for. Uh, and to be honest, I mean, it's a fantastic opportunity. Everyone says, well, your solution requires a lot of investments. And I go, yeah, isn't that great? That's a huge market. Uh, so you have to realize that it's also an opportunity for investing in this kind of climate tech impact. And, and I know that the report recently made from uh, Unreasonable Group, you know, investigating all these different climate uh, tech companies that a mix of financial investors, both from VCs, CVCs and more strategic stakeholders will be needed in this transition. Amazing. I can't wait to get a coach across the bridge one day and it be powered by Elon Road. Thank you. We hope so. Thanks, Karen. And finally, Amy, this week, you've been looking at some data gathered by Ada Ventures that paints a pretty stark picture of how much money is going into female-owned VC funds compared to those owned by male teams. How bad is it? It's pretty bad. Um, so it's a pretty comparable picture to the amount of female startup founders who get money. So Ada looked at VC funds raised in the UK between 2017 and the middle of 2023. And it found that all male-owned VC funds raised around 10 times more capital than all female-owned funds and almost five times more capital than mixed gender-owned funds. So that means that of the £6.6 .6 billion raised by UK-based VCs in that time period, just £462.5 million was raised by all female-owned funds. And it had some pretty bad statistics on women working at VC funds too and at what levels they're working. Yeah, so it, the stats basically go that at the junior and admin levels, women 
outnumber men. Um, when it comes to roles, non-investment roles like legal, comms, office assistants, women vastly outnumber men. But then as soon as you get to kind of the middle ranks and the senior ranks, men absolutely outweigh women. And what the thing that really, really struck me about the report is that they'd looked at who of all those VCs has a significant stake in a VC firm. So many of you listening will know this, but VC firms uh, have management companies and it's those management companies that kind of control the funds that they raise. So a VC management company might actually control multiple funds if the VC has raised several funds. And it's those management entities, the, the most kind of senior VCs, the VCs who make most money ultimately from the funds, have a stake in the management companies. And the report found that just 23 women in the UK have more than a 25% stake in a VC management company, which is just piddly. Like I, I did actually ask for the specific names of the women mm-hmm. um, and they wouldn't give them to me, but I'm interested if you have any ideas who they might be. But what's tricky, so tricky about this is that we at Sifted, for example, published a database of all the women who are VC partners in Europe. And we specified when we add people to this database that the women need to be making investment decisions because that was our kind of metric to check that these women actually had kind of power in their firms. But what this report shows is that you can have a title that is managing partner, general partner, partner, founding partner, and you still might not have that significant stake in the VC firm. Mm. Um, And this just all, you know, this just has a knock on effect. There's been reports done that show that women investors are up to two times more likely to invest in female founders. So when at that top level, we don't have women with significant power, it just trickles down through the ecosystem and we see fewer women get funding Mm. i feel like this isn't the first time we've had this conversation right so were there any new ideas about how to improve the situation how to make this a bit better i mean really no calls for more transparency i think that always helps something we i am very passionate about sifted so for example when we see vc firms that have extremely male teams will point that out because i think that's an important data point for people to know and i know that lots of people find it incredibly annoying that we do that but it is also leading to some change and i think lps the people who invest in vc firms can also play a big role they can ask i don't know if they do but do they actually ask vc firms when they're raising money for them you know who actually owns who is economically benefiting from this um so i think a lot more vcs reporting who works for them who's in what role what it means to have a certain title whether that actually comes with you having more carry or taking some of the management fees or not but i think you know we just have to keep having reports come out like this and hopefully they they you know encourage people to have conversations and to ask hard questions but it's quite damning it doesn't these numbers don't really change year on year and that is all we have time for so if you would like to know more about what's happening in the world of startups please sign up to our daily newsletter you can find it at www.sifted.eu we have just got a fantastic new hire her name is Anne Schraders she's based in Berlin and she will be writing it as of tomorrow 
when you'll be listening to this podcast perhaps so please sign up to that it's full of all the juiciest and most interesting and most useful info about what's going on in european startups please let us know what you think of the podcast you can email me amy at sifted.eu thank you very much orlando for standing in for eleanor no worries. anytime have a great week everyone thanks everyone bye